Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your secret Santa Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features holiday horror, deadly dresses, and cheap kills. Grab a gift as we discuss some snow-covered movies. Number one, Dead End, 2003, directed by Jean-Baptiste Andrea. A family is on the road heading to Grandma's on Christmas Eve. Dad takes a shortcut and almost gets into a crash after dozing off at the wheel. The family picks up a strange woman in white. People start dying one by one, and the road is inescapable. After everyone else dies, the daughter wakes up in a hospital. After the hearse that's been taking away people shows up and doesn't take her. A man says he came across a crash and the daughter was the sole survivor. The man leaves in a hearse and it appears that all the events on the road actually happened. The dance driving or supernatural forces on an endless road are the killers. I left out a bunch of specifics in that summary, like the names of the characters and whatnot. Here's the family. Dad is Frank, Mom is Laura, Son is Richard, Daughter is Marion, and Marion's boyfriend is Brad. I'll start off by running through the deaths in Dead End. Brad is the first to die, he disappears and is seen being driven off in the hearse that keeps popping up right before someone dies. His body is found all chopped up, but all we see is his ear that's attached to his cell phone antenna by an earring he was wearing. Next up is Richard. Richard's the most insufferable little idiot, so it's good that he goes early on. Here are some of his exploits prior to dying. After finding the strange woman in white and her baby, the family goes back to a small cabin to look for help. Does Richard help in any way? Nope. He takes this opportunity to go jacket in the woods. It's weird and completely out of place. Richard is a comically overwritten douchebag character. Right before dying, he smokes some weed and makes out with the woman in white who pops up again. She drops her dress and the sight of her naked front freaks Richard out for some reason. I'm assuming lots of gore or something. I wonder if there's a cut of Dead End that shows more on-screen gore. Anyway, Hearst snatches up Richard and his body is found in the road all burnt up. Everyone's going a uh, little bananas at this point, some more than others. Laura has completely fallen off the rocker and starts acting loony. She reveals that she cheated on Frank and that a dude named Alan was actually Richard's pop. Laura's crazy exploits include scarfing down a whole pie, a bag of chips, hilariously throwing it all up, shooting Frank in the leg, and bailing out of a car as it's going 60 miles per hour. Don't worry, she's fine. She just ends up with her brain being exposed after she loses part of the back of her head. 
She does end up dying, but not until after she fingers her brain and moans while saying Alan. Hold up. Wait a second. You're telling me that there's a part in the movie where the mom rubs her goopy out in the open brain in a sexual manner? Why? Why would that be included in Dead End? I have no idea. This movie is stupid. Moving on, Frank runs into the woods alone and dies. The hearse then pops up and the lady in white tells Marion the ride's not for her. Marion then wakes up in the hospital, yada yada. How are the little bits of gore that are actually shown? Fine, the ear, gunshot wound, exposed brain, child corpse that Brad sees before disappearing that I didn't mention, and burnt hand look okay. The lady in white has a cut on her forehead that is obviously fake. The soundtrack has big early 2000s energy. Not only are there random out of place blaring techno songs, the opening credits also look like something a high school student would turn in for their media class. I really hate the ending of Dead End. The whole waking up in the hospital thing is lame even though the movie reveals that the events actually happened. Dead End should have ended with another family coming by and picking up Marion, who would basically end up being the new Lady in White. I also hate the title. There was no end to the road. It should have been called No End, not Dead End. The acting is all over the place. It's mostly hammy. The best performance comes from Ray Wise, who played Frank. Lynn Shay played Laura, and I liked when she got all nutty with the character. The worst actor of the movie was Mick Kane, who played Richard, but that role should have been given to a much younger actor. Richard would be a much more believable character if the person portraying him was around 16. Since I brought up all the other family members, Alexandra Holden played Marion. She's fine. Dead End is a bizarre movie. It's not good enough to be recommended as a good movie, and it's not bad funny enough to be recommended as a so bad it's good movie. It's mediocre. I enjoyed my time with it, but I don't recommend going out of your way to watch Dead End. Number 2, 3615, Code Père Noel, also known as Deadly Games, Dial Code Santa Claus, Game Over, and Hide and Freak. 1989, directed by Rene Menzor. A rich kid named Thomas lives in a mansion with his mom, practically blind grandfather, and dog JR. Mom goes to work. Thomas talks to a creepy dude on the computer who's claiming to be Santa. Creepy dude is hired to be a Santa, then promptly fired. Creepy dude ends up at Thomas's mansion and kills a driver and house staff. Thomas waits up to try and see Santa, even though his mom said that Santa would turn into an ogre if he was seen. Creepy dude Santa comes down the chimney and, pet warning, kills JR. Thomas and Grandpa run from Santa. Hijinks ensue. A cop shows up and is killed by Santa. Thomas uses the cop's gun to shoot Santa once. Grandpa also ends up taking a shot, which puts down Santa for good. Mom finally shows up and finds Thomas blaming himself for everything since he stayed up to see Santa. Creepy dude Santa is the killer. The movie with a million names. I think I'll stick with dial code Santa Claus. That's super long though, so I'll refer to it as Dial Santa. Dial Santa is a movie I've been looking forward to seeing for a year. I wanted to see it last holiday season, but couldn't find anywhere to watch it with subtitles. Shudder to the rescue. I sometimes wonder if having Shudder is worth it. I'm still not sure, but Shudder has come through for me quite a few times. 
Anyway, I saw Dial Santa described as Home Alone with a murderous Santa. Yes, Dial Santa did come out before Home Alone. Personally, I think the only similarity Dial Santa has with Home Alone is the fact that a kid is being terrorized in his home. That's about it. Dial Santa has a completely different tone. Pet warning, there's not a part in Home Alone where a dog is brutally murdered in front of the protagonist kid with a serving knife. That happens in Dial Santa, blood spurt and all. If you are a pooch fan, the pooch kill is definitely going to upset you. Before the dog is killed in cold blood, I wasn't sure how far this movie was going to take things. I mean, creepy dude Santa is shown choking out a driver before the dog's demise, but up until Scruffy's blood is put on display, it's possible that Santa just made the driver fall asleep for a little bit instead of forever. Dial Code Santa doesn't have the cartoonish violence of Home Alone. Some of Thomas's ideas to thwart Santa have a tune element, like when Thomas rigs a toy train with a plastic grenade that he turned into an actual explosive one with marble, shrapnel, and everything. Kevin didn't craft any homemade explosives. How's the gore in Dial Santa? It's fine. There's blood when the dog stabbed, Santa bashes his own face into a car windshield, Thomas's leg is slashed, and Santa's shot. Besides the blood, there's a sequence where Thomas walks around with the dog corpse that's a real downer. I'm not sure if they train the dog to stay limp with its tongue hanging out or if they made a prop, but the dog corpse looked depressingly real. Thomas has a luscious mullet for the entire movie. There's no reason behind the mullet, but it's there. The kid that plays Thomas is solid. I also liked Grandpa. The guy they got to play creepy dude Santa is perfect. That dude has one unsettling face. If you told me they found some random murderous vagrant and just filmed him, I'd believe you. My favorite aspect of Dial Santa is the over-the-top mansion most of the movie takes place in. There are secret passageways filled with toys. Thomas sleeps in a fighter plane bed. There's a maze room that even Thomas doesn't remember how to traverse. The mansion is astounding. The pacing for Dial Santa isn't great. A lot of the film's runtime is spent showing Thomas doing things like setting up traps or walking around. I don't need to see every aspect of how Thomas rigs a crossbow to shoot darts when someone walks by. One strange aspect of the pacing is whenever Santa ends up in one of Thomas's traps, no time is spent on the aftermath. Darts just plunged into Santa's neck. Cut away to Thomas 10 minutes later. What happened in those 10 minutes I missed? That doesn't matter. Santa has to deal with a giant fire. Oh, wait, he's fine now. What happened with the fire? Don't worry about it. Holy moly, Santa's holding Thomas's homemade grenade and it's about to explode. Cut to Thomas, who's uh, teleported to another room. What the hell? I, I don't understand the slow, meandering shots when nothing is really going on paired with the jarring cutaways whenever anything interesting is about to happen. That's my biggest gripe with the movie. There's never any time to revel when creepy dude Santa ends up in one of Thomas's traps. The idea of a murderous Santa chasing a kid MacGyver around a humongous mansion is a good one. Thing is, Dial Code Santa Claus doesn't really capitalize on it. Instead of a lot of goofy, frightening, kid-versus-bum Santa action, most of the movie is spent watching the world's slowest game of hide-and-seek. Dial Code Santa Claus is still worth seeing for the novelty, 
but it's not a movie that deserves the hype. I'd even put Home Alone 3 over this movie if we're talking straight up entertainment value, and Max not even in that one. Maybe I'm going a little too far saying that. I haven't seen Home Alone 3 in over a decade. Number 3, A Nasty Piece of Work, 2019, directed by Charles Hood. Ted, an insufferable grump suck-up, is distraught that he's not getting a Christmas bonus. Gavin, a douche bro, beat Ted for a promotion. Steven, the CEO, invites Ted and Gavin and their wives, Tatum and Missy, over for a Christmas dinner with him and his wife, Kiwi. At the dinner, Steven shoots Kiwi, who was being a flirt. Gavin and Ted try to help cover up the murder. The death was staged. Steven and Kiwi continue to mess with their guests by hanging a promotion over them. In the end, Ted is told to shoot a guy who he paralyzed in a car accident. Ted can't do it, but Gavin says he'll kill the guy. Tatum then takes the gun from Ted and kills Steven and Kiwi. Rich old dudes love Tatum's initiative and make her CEO. Tatum is the killer. She doesn't kill the rich hosts in self-defense. Oh, the paralyzed guy wasn't actually paralyzed either. It was all a game. A nasty piece of work is fine. I'd probably give it a 5 on the Hulu Into the Dark scale from 1 to 10. It wouldn't do that hot if it was being compared to actual movies though. At this point, I don't consider Hulark movies to be on the same level as actual movies. Even most crappy B-movies are better than Hulark movies. A nasty piece of work starts off by introducing us to Ted. Ted instantly comes off as an insufferable loser. His amazing wife Tatum is crazy supportive and way more attractive than him. Ted ain't a looker. Ted has no redeeming qualities. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room when all he is is a baby prone to temper tantrums. I'm not sure if Nasty wanted me to root for Ted. When the rich CEO who's a creep to one of the wives is more likable than the character I'm assuming is our protagonist, there's a problem. Tatum is the real protagonist. She's played by Angela Serafian. I only watched one episode of Westworld. I liked it, I just hadn't gotten around to watching more. And I guess that's where I've seen her before. She's the only character that's likable. Kiwi, the horndog scamp, is also kind of likable. Molly Hagen plays Kiwi. Kyle Howard plays Ted, and I hate his face and constant whining in Nasty. One of my biggest gripes with Nasty are the guns that are used. In the mansion the dinner is held, there are two bolt-action Lee Enfield rifles on the wall. Uh, Josh, why would you say bolt-action Lee Enfield? That's redundant. I'm explicitly pointing out that the guns in the movie are bolt-action guns. Now normally I'm not going to spend a huge part of a section talking about how guns in movies aren't portrayed correctly. I'm not a gun nut or anything. Thing is, Nasty has Steven talk about the guns on the wall, the Lee Enfields. When talking about the guns, he emphasizes that their model is one of the most successful bolt-action rifles ever made. Steven hammers the point home that the rifles are bolt-action. This fact is then ignored. The guns are shot multiple times without anyone loading around into the chamber with the bolt. Sure, both guns could have had a round already in the chamber, but after those first shots, you have to manually use the bolt to chamber another round. Again, I wouldn't be complaining about this if Steven didn't rave about the guns being one of the best types of bolt-action rifle of all time. 
Josh, you're really hung up on this bolt action thing. Why don't you tell us more about the movie? Well, listeners, not much else of value happens in the movie. Gavin is shot in the hand and shoulder. Don't worry, he's fine after being shot in the hand and shoulder from 10 feet away by a high-powered rifle. Steven and Kiwi aren't as lucky. How's the gore? Boring and barely passable. All of the gore is gunshot based. Most of it looked practical, at least. Even though the movie is just short of 80 minutes, it still drags. Even though all I've been doing is complaining, I did find a nasty piece of work mildly entertaining. You can do way worse when it comes to Hulark movies. Thing is, I don't recommend that anyone seeks out Hulark movies. A nasty piece of work is just a crappier version of Would You Rather. Would You Rather isn't amazing, but if you're looking for a movie where rich people throw a dinner party and torture those who are less fortunate, you'll have way more fun with Would You Rather. Skip a nasty piece of work and watch Would You Rather instead. Number 4, In Fabric, 2018, directed by Peter Strickland. Since this is a new movie, I'll give it a spoiler warning. I was excited to see In Fabric and left disappointed. Unfortunately, I don't recommend it. Good luck finding somewhere to watch the movie if you decide to seek it out anyway. Here's a quick spoiler warning. If ye want to go in blind, skip to 26 minutes 22 seconds. When will the land lovers make a moving picture about an evil pirate hat? Thanks for that, SB. In Fabric 2018, directed by Peter Strickland. A department store is having a sale. Sheila, a divorced mom whose grown son lives with her, buys a new red dress. After the purchase, odd things start happening. Sheila ends up dying in a car crash. Reg, a washing machine repairman, ends up wearing the same dress during his stag party. Afterwards, his fiancée Babs also tries it on. Reg ends up dying from carbon monoxide poisoning, and Babs dies at the department store after it catches on fire. The curse of the artery red dress is the killer. Artery red is the color listed in the catalog. I could probably put the department store employees on the killer list too, since they seem to know all about the killer dress. Peter Strickland popped up in the last episode. In that episode, I said I adored his short, The Cobbler's Lot, and the horror anthology, The Field Guide to Evil, that was released just short of a year ago. Right after seeing that anthology, I looked up Strickland and saw that he had made a movie about a killer dress. Sign me up. I've been anticipating In Fabric. I wasn't sure when it was going to come out and randomly decided to finally watch Strickland's other feature in the horror genre, Barbarian Sound Studio, for the last episode. If you missed that episode, I didn't come away loving Barbarian Sound Studio. Coming off that disappointment, I tapered my expectations for In Fabric and went in apprehensive. I mean, the movie only had two showings listed near me, one in San Antonio, one in Austin, and both in the dead of night. The Alamo Draft House had similar scarce showings for another movie. What was that movie? The Field Guide to Evil, which as a whole was not great. Uh-oh, this obviously didn't bode well for In Fabric. As the showtime approached, my hype was turning to fear. Would In Fabric disappoint me like Barbarian Sound Studio had? No, In Fabric must be a campy horror masterpiece in the same vein as The Cobbler's Lot, right? In Fabric was disappointing. 
Josh, you're just a grumpy curmudgeon. How are you such a Eustace bag at your age? Everyone else loves in fabric and are putting it on their best of the year lists. You still think worst of the year lists are important, you scumbag monster. Whoa, listeners, relax. Worst of lists are a whole other can of worms. I'll talk about those in a bit. Just because I found in fabric disappointing doesn't mean I dislike the entire thing. It means I didn't dig it as a whole. In fabric is a gorgeous film. If there is one thing that's absolutely true, Strickland's movies are beautiful. They're filled with vibrant color and fantastic cinematography. The set design of the department store in In Fabric is impeccable. Everything about the department store is perfection. The hypnotizing commercials for the store, the atmosphere, the way the employees talk, wonderful. If I had to pick a favorite thing about In Fabric, it has to be the figuratively other language the department store employees speak. Sure, they are speaking English, but what they say sounds so otherworldly and foreign. If I had to name their language, I'd call it existential sales speak. For example, during the fire, there's a warning message that says to please exit the store graciously. That's a bad example and paraphrased, but I assure you, the way the salespeople talk is a delight. The main department store employee salesperson is credited as Miss Luckmore. She probably said her name, and I forgot it. Luckmore is played by Fatma Muhammad, who's in almost everything Strickland has listed on IMDb. She was great in Bavarian Sound Studio, and she's even better in In Fabric. Her delivery as the oddball dress pusher is exquisite. Whenever she was on screen, I was enthralled. She's the star of the film in my opinion. At the end of the movie, she gets into a dumbwaiter and goes down into the depths of the department store, where what I can only assume are the souls of the past dress wearers are imprisoned. As she sees the different victims who appear to be stuck sewing new red dresses for all eternity, the faces of joy she makes are hilarious. Reminiscing about her performance is making me question why I didn't like the movie. One obvious reason is that Luckmore isn't always on screen during the two-hour runtime. Two hours? Yep, this movie about a killer dress is two hours long. I think I'd easily recommend this movie if more time was spent with Sheila. After she dies, the movie becomes a lot less compelling. I had practically no interest in Reg and Babs. Reg's whole stick was that he would ramble on about how a washing machine could be fixed, which people found pleasurable to listen to. Babs's thing is that she didn't fit in the movie at all. Her character felt completely out of place and didn't belong in the world that was showcased in the first half of In Fabric. I didn't care about Reg or Babs. I wanted to see what happened with Sheila's son Victor and his overtly sexual girlfriend Gwen, who I did not realize was played by Gwendolyn Christie due to the lack of armor, I suppose. I knew I recognized her from somewhere. I wanted to see Victor, who was a complete ass to his mom, come to terms with her death while the red dress worked towards killing him and Gwen. The dress tried to kill Gwen once, let it continue its attempts to take her life, please. I wanted to watch Sheila become more and more terrified of the dress after she was injured in a freak washing machine accident and attacked by a dog whose mission was to destroy the dress. Technically, pet warning, the dog ends up being put down after it attacks Sheila. It's off screen. You just hear about it. Anyways, instead of continuing on with Sheila, Infabric gives her an anticlimactic death and drops in new characters that I couldn't care less about. 
This reminds me, recently a clip from the movie was released. I didn't watch the clip beforehand as to not ruin anything, but the clip is of a dream Reg has where Babs has a baby that comes out wearing a little red dress and flips him off. Okay, that's mildly humorous and incredibly campy. Problem is, if you see that clip, it's going to give you the wrong expectations. In Fabric never reaches that level of camp again, and the dream sequence is towards the tail end of the movie. That's another issue I had with In Fabric. It didn't know if it wanted to lean full on into the camp or not. Sure, the department store is campy, but it's not the same level of camp that is a newborn baby flipping the bird. I wouldn't really call the whole sex mannequin ritual thing campy. Well, maybe a little, but I found that to be more absurd than campy. There are multiple parts in the movie where characters' dreams are shown and none of them are necessary. Speaking of unnecessary, there are three scenes with two bank manager guys that add barely anything to the movie. Cut the dream sequences and the bank guy scenes, most of which overlap, and I think in Fabric's pacing would work a lot better. I'd still prefer the majority of the story to involve Sheila and the characters associated with her, but removing the bank manager sit-downs and dream sequences would be a start. I found myself constantly losing interest once the protagonist switched to Reg. Let me hit some staples real quick. The overall acting is solid. Marianne John Baptiste was great as Sheila. The gore is practical and well done. Another pet warning, Reg and Babs Canary is suffocated by the dress. I really appreciated all the nods to Giallo films like the intensity of the color, especially the reds, expressionist imagery like the spiral that resembles a washing machine, cinematography, and the score. The main theme is an absolute banger. The marks left on the dress wearers were neat. I walked away disappointed because I wanted a tighter script that focused more on established characters instead of one that jumps all over the place. If In Fabric had focused more on Sheila, the characters surrounding her, the department store and its employees, and cut out Reg and crew altogether, I would more than likely be praising this film. As a whole, In Fabric didn't do it for me. It was a meandering, bloated mess. Maybe I just don't dig surreal and absurdist films as much as I thought I did. It has nuggets of greatness, but overall, I don't recommend In Fabric. Number 5, Body, 2015, directed by Dan Burke and Robert Olson. You'll enjoy this movie more without spoilers. It isn't the most amazing thing in the world, but it's a fun what's going to happen next type movie. Skip to 31 minutes, 18 seconds. If ye want to ride the roller coaster ye sells. Here's the summary. Callie, Holly, and Mel are hanging out for the holidays. Callie suggests they all go hang out at her rich uncle's house. Once at the house, Holly realizes it doesn't belong to Callie's uncle. A man enters the house to investigate. He grabs onto Holly, who then pushes him down the stairs. The girls believe the man is dead and come up with a fake story that will get them out of trouble. The man is alive. His name is Arthur. Holly and Mel decide they should turn themselves in. Callie disappears and kills Arthur. Callie then ties up Holly and plans to kill her too. Holly gets free and kills Callie. Holly and Mel then agree that the story is Arthur tried to force himself on Holly. Callie came to the rescue. Arthur killed Callie, and Holly killed Arthur. The police show up. Callie is the killer. Body, not to be confused with the terrible Hulu Into the Dark movie, The Body. Body was surprisingly enjoyable. It's rare that a movie has a group of three girls that are believable friends. 
their dialogue is juvenile and genuine. A solid group of pals. Well, at least until knockoff Tim Robbins falls down the stairs. Then everyone starts turning on each other. Look up Larry Resenden. Look me in the eyes and tell me he's not a knockoff Tim Robbins. I knew Body was going to be one of the best motion pictures ever as soon as Sunglasses Dad made his appearance. Who the hell is Sunglasses Dad? He's everyone and no one. He's just some random dude that's a dad wearing sunglasses at night, indoors. Best character in any movie ever. Why is he wearing sunglasses? No one knows. He's mysterious. I want to say it's revealed that he's some type of politician later on in the movie who wouldn't vote for Sunglasses Dad. How's the acting in Body? It's all over the place. The three girls, Callie, Holly, and Mel, are played by Alexandra Sertian, Helen Rogers, and Lauren Molina, respectively. The best of the trio is probably Helen Rogers, but I didn't have any problems with the trio's acting. It's not amazing, but it works. Larry Resenden is also solid, even though all he really had to do was lay on the ground and pretend to be paralyzed. Now, I didn't bring up a character that randomly pops up. Holly's boyfriend, Ben, comes over to the house. Ben was played by Adam Cornelius. Ben is his only acting credit, and for good reason. Cornelius's performance is abysmal in body. Not only is his acting robotic and off-putting, he also looks like 20 years older than the girls. I don't think he's meant to be an older teacher dating a student or anything. His entire time on screen is comically bad. Something else that is comically bad. After Callie murders, Holly slaps her since they all voted and the result was 2-1 no murder. The sound effect used for the slap sounds like one of those plastic hand clapper toys. It doesn't fit at all. It's so ill-fitting that I had to rewind and listen to it again since I thought I had just misheard the sound effect. Allegedly, Callie represents id, Mel ego, and Holly super ego. That didn't come across to me. I guess it lines up though. The gore? There's a little bit since Callie is taken out with a broken off table leg and Holly and Mel have to bash in Arthur's face to fit their narrative. The head wounds look solid. Holly and Mel end up with blood splatter on their faces that looks fine. That's the extent of the gore. At one point in the movie, Arthur, who's paralyzed from the neck down from the stair tumble, sensually licks a tassel that's hanging off a table. Sensually isn't the right word. He gets the tassel into his mouth to pull a tray down to make some noise in a failed attempt to alert Ben to his presence. Thing is, there was no tassel around him before he sticks his tongue out to give it a taste. Where did the tassel come from? It feels like a shot is missing or something. Another oddity of the film is that Holly and Mel originally go along with Callie's plan. In the beginning of the movie, it's revealed that Callie is stupid. Why y'all following the stupid one's orders? I realize that this section isn't really selling, body. Trust me, it's entertaining enough for a watch. I'd say sit down with your own trio of friends, crack some jokes, have some laughs, and you won't be disappointed. Body isn't some revolutionary movie, but it's a fun watch and technically a Christmas horror movie since most of the movie takes place on Christmas Eve. Number 6, Secret Santa, 2005, directed by Mike McMurrin. A group of friends that are having a holiday get-together and participating in Secret Santa start getting picked off one by one. The killer ends up being three people that are insane. Nicole is the only one of the friends who survives. She takes out two of the killers. A year later, she takes out the third. Three insane people are the killers. 
I remember either reading somewhere or being told that there was a decent Christmas horror movie called Secret Santa. Turns out, there are two movies with that title. One released in 2015 and one from 2018. I couldn't remember the recommendation including a date, so I decided I'd watch both. I wanted to start with the 2018 version, but couldn't find it anywhere. Well, that's not true. I could have bought the DVD off Amazon. I don't have time for that though, so I watched Secret Santa 2015. Secret Santa is an incredibly independent movie. All of the acting is purposefully hammy. A film grain filter is used. I'm fine with the filter. I know they piss some people off. Secret Santa has a lot of heart, and I love watching a movie with heart. Now, heart is great and all, but it won't save your movie if it's dog poop tier, e.g. Red Christmas. Remember that garbage fire? Luckily, Secret Santa has heart and is competent. Secret Santa is fun. Most of the performances in it are fantastic. I'll run through the best and worst characters. The best character is Dwayne, the screw-up of the bunch. He's played by Jeff Almond, who brings so much energy to the role. I'd watch a spin-off Dwayne movie for sure. It's unfortunate that he dies after getting his wiener snipped off with garden shears. Another fun character is Carissa. She banged a fun character, Brian, who looks like a knockoff John Hamm. He's dating Nicole, who moonlights as a cam girl. Dwayne, Carissa, Brian, and Nicole are all great and fun. The worst character in the movie is Professor Ramsey, who's dating his TA and member of the friend group, Olivia. He's played by Tony Nash and has the most acting credits, even though he's the worst actor of the bunch. Maybe he's decent in traditional roles, but Secret Santa demanded over-the-top hammy acting, which Nash doesn't provide. Gore? In a small, low-budget horror movie? The gore in Secret Santa is surprisingly great. Here are items used for murdering. Power drill, electric carver, meat cleaver, fire poker, kitchen knife, garden shears, and a hair dryer. That's a lot of murder weapons, and I might even be forgetting something. The hair dryer was supposed to be used to electrocute Carissa while she's taking a bath, but the cord was too short. I felt so embarrassed for the killer. Luckily, they were a quick thinker and improvised. Turns out you can bash in someone's head with a hair dryer. All of the gore looks great. If I had to say anything negative about the gore, I'd say the blood is a little too soupy. That doesn't really matter though. Secret Santa isn't going for realistic gore. It's going for over-the-top silly gore, and it succeeds. Secret Santa is a funny movie. The hair dryer fiasco, Nicole throwing a dildo at one of the killer's faces to deter them, and almost all of Dwayne's antics really worked for me. The sound effects in the movie are reminiscent of old crappy B-movies in a good way. The score is solid when it's there. My biggest gripe with the movie is probably how awkwardly quiet things get when the score isn't there. Have the friends play some music at their get-together, or throw some ambient background noise in there. Secret Santa is an independent movie with a lot of heart. I recommend checking it out if you're looking for a low, low, low budget holiday slasher. Number 7, in defense of worst of lists. To some people, worst of lists are terrifying. Uh-oh, some people are about to get real salty. Recently, I've seen a lot of end-of-the-year lists. One type of list that's been turning a bunch of people into grumpy Gregs is worst of the year lists. Before I dive into my defense of worst of lists, I want to note here that a lot of the lists I've seen people complaining about are obvious bait lists. It's sad that bait lists are a thing, but online journalism is 
mostly a joke these days. I know there's still some legit journalists out there. Love y'all. I'm talking about bait list makers. What's a bait list? A bait list is a list of things that either excludes something that should definitely be on it or puts something stupid high up on the list. For example, if I wanted to make an easy peasy bait list, I'd put out one called the top three best Harry Potter movies and put Fantastic Beasts and where to find them in the number one spot. That's obviously incorrect. Ain't no one willing to get behind Fantastic Beasts being the best HP movie. Bait lists are made to make people complain about them. Your list will get more attention and exposure if people are whining about it. Don't be a little dum-dum and fall for bait lists. I'm not defending bait lists here, I'm defending worst of the year lists. I myself put out a worst of the year list, so I'm biased. It's the rotten section of the pumpkin harvest. I release it every October, and that section includes the worst movies I've watched for the podcast the year prior. Why are these lists valuable? Let's say you like a critic. That critic is mostly positive about everything they see. How do you know how much their opinion aligns with your own if they never go for the throat of bad movies? I don't know about y'all, but I watch a lot of bad movies every year. I could only talk about movies that I like and be less negative, but what's wrong with calling out bad movies? Josh, if the bloody Reuben, well, the short film you made and directed and poured years of work into ended up on a worst of list, you'd be crying too. Actually, crybabies on Twitter, I wouldn't. I'd completely understand my short making it on a worst of list. If anyone can point out that movie's shortcomings, it's me. It landing on a worst of list would light a fire under me. Well, if there was a worst of list for critics and you were on there, you'd change your mind about these lists. Nope. I would change the way I review things if that was the case, though. Worst of lists are important because they let you know what to avoid, see how your opinions align with a critic's, and provide entertainment. There are a ton of absolutely terrible movies that no one would ever hear about if it wasn't for worst of lists. At the end of the day, all I have to say is this. Worst lists are fun. Bait lists are stupid. Don't waste your time getting outraged at either. Especially bait lists because they are tailored to make you salty. And so episode 60, Holiday Horror, Deadly Dresses, and Cheap Kills comes to an end. As always, a big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to reach your wonderful ears. Episode 61 will be out on December 29th and will be filled with even more horror movie stocking stuffers. See y'all then, I have to go try on this new red dress I found.